Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for January, February and March 2013. Titled Origins, this podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 5, January 26 to February 1, Creation and Morality. Sabbath afternoon, January 26. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're opening your word again this week. We're looking at creation and we're looking to see how it affects life here on earth as far as the decisions that we make. As we open your word, we pray that we may see you as the God who created all, the God we can trust, the God who is there for us. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text is Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Let's read that again, Genesis two sixteen and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. People love to talk about human rights. From the Magna Carta in 1215 to the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen in 1798 to various United States declarations, the idea is promoted that human beings possess certain inalienable rights, rights that no one can rightfully take away from us. They are ours by virtue of being human, and at least that's how the theory goes. The questions remain... What are these rights? How are we to determine what they are? Can these rights change, and if so, how so? Why should we as humans have these rights anyway? In some countries, for instance, women were not given the right to vote until the 20th century. Some nations still deny it. How, though, can a government grant to people something that is their inalienable right to begin with? These are hard questions, and their answers are inseparably linked to the question of human origins, the study for this week's lesson. Sunday, January 27, Our Dependence on the Creator Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 depicts God as creating Adam individually and represents him to be an intelligent moral being rather than as an animal. The text does not say, but one can imagine God using his hands to form the dust into the intended shape and size. One might think that the great sovereign of the universe would not stoop to get his hands dirty in the making of man, but the Bible reveals the Creator as one closely involved with the creation. Scripture records many occasions when God willingly interacted with the material creation. 
Examples include Exodus chapter 32, Luke chapter 4, and John chapter 9. Indeed, the incarnation of Christ himself into humanity, into human flesh, where he day by day interacted with the created world in much the way we do, refutes the notion that God would not stoop to get his hands dirty among humanity. Question. Read Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. What command did God give to Adam? What is implied in that command? And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper comparable to him. We may ask, what right did God have to make rules for Adam and Eve? Compare this situation to that of a child in a family. The child's parents provide the child with a home and all of life's necessities. They love the child and have the child's best interests in mind. Their great experience and wisdom can spare the child much misery if that child will accept their guidance. Some children find this guidance difficult, but it is universally recognized that as long as the child is dependent on parents for necessities, the child is obligated to accept the parents' rules. In like manner, because we are always dependent on our Heavenly Father for life and its necessities, it is always appropriate for us to accept God's guidance. Because He is a God of love, we can trust him to always provide what we need for our own good. And to finish today, it says, read Psalm 95 and verse 6 and 7. And that reads, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand, today, if you will hear his voice. And also, Psalm 100. And that reads, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him, and bless his name, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. How does the psalmist express our dependence on God? What obligations does that dependence automatically place on you, especially in regard to the way in which you treat others? Monday, January 28, in the image of God. Question. Read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 and 28. What special attribute was given to humans that was not given to the animals? 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What exactly is the image of God? This question has generated a great deal of discussion, and opinions vary. But the verses provide some clues regarding the nature of the idea. First note that to be made in the image of God implies that we resemble God in certain ways. One important aspect of the image of God is that God gave to humans dominion over the other creatures. As God is sovereign over all, He has appointed to humans a share of sovereignty by giving them dominion over the fish, the birds, and the land animals. Notice too that God purposed to make man in our image that is, an image involving the plurality of the Godhead. Then he made humans male and female. The image of God is not fully expressed in an individual, but in relationship. As the Godhead is manifest in three persons in relationship, the image of God in humans is expressed in relationship of male and female. The ability to form relationships is part of the image of God. Relationships, of course, imply responsibility and accountability, which means morality. Hence, right here we are given a strong hint as to how morality finds its base in the creation story. Question. Read Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 and James chapter 3 and verse 9. In what way is the idea of humans being made in the image of God clearly linked to the concept of morality? First of all, Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And then in James chapter 3 and verse 9. And that reads... With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Humans have wrestled for millennia with the question of morality. Even before one gets into what is the right kind of morality, the whole idea of morality itself raises a host of deep issues. Why should humans, as opposed to beetles, fleas, or even chimps, have a moral conscience, a concept that distinguishes between right and wrong. How can things made essentially of amoral matter, quarks, gluons, electrons, and so forth, be aware of moral concepts? The answer can be found in the early chapters of the Bible, which reveal humans to be moral creatures made in the image of God. Tuesday, January 29, Made of One Blood 
In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, Adam is given the task of naming his wife, whom he calls Hava, H-A-V-A-H. This word is related to the Hebrew word Haya, which means to live. Jews sometimes use the related expression Lahayim, to life. The Hebrew word for Eve, Hava, can be translated as life-giver. Eve's name represents the fact that she is the ancestor of all humans. We are all one family in the most literal sense. Question. Read Acts chapter 17 verse 26. How does Paul link the brotherhood of all humanity to the creation? Compare with Matthew 23 verse 9. Well, first of all, Acts 17.26, And he has made from one blood every nation of earth to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And we'll compare that with Matthew chapter 23, verse 9. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. We are united in that we all descended from one woman, Eve, and from one man, Adam. And God is the father of us all. This fact is the basis of human equality. Think how different human relations would be if all people recognized this important truth. If we ever needed proof of how far fallen we are, of how badly sin has damaged us, we have it in the sad fact that humans often treat one another worse than some people treat animals. Question. Read Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, and chapter 22, verse 2. How do these texts help us to understand the link between morality and the fact that we are created by God? Proverbs 14:31. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his Maker but he who honours him has mercy on the needy. And Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 2. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Many factors have divided the human race, political, national, ethnic, and of course economic. The economic factor is arguably one of the most consequential, though never to the degree that Karl Marx envisioned. The workers of the world never did unite. Instead, they warred against each other based on their nationality. Today, as always, the poor and the rich often regard one another with suspicion and disdain. How often these sentiments have led to violence, even war. The causes of poverty and the solution to it still continue to baffle us. But one thing is sure from the word of God. Rich or poor, we all deserve the dignity that is ours by virtue of our origins. So to finish today, years ago, after Darwinism became fashionable, some justified the exploitation of the poor by the rich on the grounds of social Darwinism, the idea that in the natural world, the strong overcome and exploit the weak, so why should not the same principle apply in economics? How is this another example of why a correct grasp of origins is crucial to the understanding of morality?
Wednesday, January 30, The Character of Our Creator God created us in His image, which means, among other things, that He intended for us to resemble Him in character. That is, we are to be like Him as much as is humanly possible. Notice, to be like God is not the same thing as to aspire to be God, a crucial difference. In order for us to be like God, in the sense that we reflect His character, we must have a proper understanding of what that character is. Question. Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 48. What do these verses reveal, not only about God's character, but also about how we should reflect His character in our own lives? Matthew five forty-four. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others?' Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Another question. Read Luke chapter 10, verses 29 to 37. And compare that with Philippians 2, verses 1 to 8. Again, what does this reveal about the character of God and how it should be reflected in humanity? Beginning at verse 29 in Luke 10. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come back, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. And we'll compare that with Philippians chapter 2, Verses 1 to 8. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The story Jesus told involved two men from different people groups, groups that were antagonistic toward each other. But Jesus showed that they were neighbours. Each was within the other's sphere of responsibility, and God was pleased when their differences were set aside, and one treated the other with kindness and compassion. What a contrast is seen between the principles of God's kingdom and the principles of Satan's rulership. God calls the strong to care for the weak, while Satan's principles call for elimination of the weak by the strong. God created a world of peaceful relationships, but Satan has distorted it so thoroughly that many regard survival of the fittest as the normal standard of conduct. If the vicious process of natural selection, in which the strong overpower the weak, were the means by which we came into existence, why should we do differently? If we accept this view, are we not following God and the dictates of nature as he ordained it when we advance our own interests at the expense of the less naturally selected? So to finish today, what are other ways in which you can see how an understanding of our origins can affect our moral concepts? Thursday, January 31, Morality and Accountability Question. In an earlier lesson, we looked at Paul's sermon to the men in Athens, in Acts 17, verses 16 to 31. Follow the line of reasoning he used, noting not just where he started, but where he ended. What's so important about the conclusion he came to, particularly regarding the question of origins and morality? Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 31. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. 
God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devisings. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the earth, the world in righteousness, by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's sermon to the men of Athens began with creation and ended with judgment. According to Paul, the God who made the world and everything in it has fixed the day on which he will judge the world. To be endowed with morality implies accountability and each of us will be held responsible for our actions and our words. See Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. And I'll have that for you in just a moment. Matthew chapter 12, and it's verses 36 and 37. And they read, But I say to you that for every idle word men shall speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Question. Read Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 to 13, and Matthew 25, 31 to 40. What is clearly taught in these texts that is directly tied to morality? First of all, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 13. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And we compare that with Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 to 40, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Everyone who ever lived will meet together in God's presence to face the judgment. The difference between the two groups in Jesus' parable is how each person treated those who were in need. The Creator is interested in how His creatures treat each other, especially those who are needy. There is no place in heaven for the principle of natural selection. It is contrary to the character of the God of peace. If the Bible teaches anything, it teaches that the justice so lacking in this world will one day be meted out by God Himself. More so, the whole idea of judgment implies a moral order. Why would God judge, much less punish, if there were no moral standards to which people could be held? So, to finish today, think through the reality and the certainty of judgment. Why, then, is the gospel and the promise of salvation in Christ so crucial in order for us to have assurance in that judgment? Friday, February 1. According to Scripture, Adam was the first man and was specially created from the dust by God. Our understanding of the origin of morality is founded in the origin of Adam. Biblical concepts of morality are then inseparable from biblical concepts of origin. Recognizing Adam as the first human also refutes the possibility that any fossils were ancestral to Adam or other humans. From where, then, did these fossils come? Several other possibilities exist. First, the human-like fossils might be forms of humans with normal intelligence, but with growth patterns unlike any present-day human. A second possibility is that the fossils may have been degenerate due to their own lifestyle or environmental stress or other factors. A third possibility is that they may be the result of Satan's direct attempts to corrupt creation in ways we do not understand. Another possibility is that they were not humans but were similar in morphology. Different people may prefer different explanations, but because we do not have direct evidence to settle the matter, it is best to avoid being dogmatic in our speculations. Fossils do not come with labels attached that say, made in China 500 million years ago, or the like. Our understanding of earth history, which varies greatly among scientists, provides a frame of reference within which we interpret fossils, but we do not have proof of our interpretations. They are, in the end, only that, interpretations, nothing else. 
And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, think through the implications of what it would mean if there was no creator who imposed a moral order on humanity. Where would moral concepts come from? Many people who don't believe in God nevertheless do hold to some strict moral standards. On what basis, other than God, might a person be able to develop a moral code? What are some possible scenarios that they could come up with? What, though, would be the ultimate weakness in them all? 2. How does our view of creation inform our opinions regarding current issues such as euthanasia, cloning, abortion, etc.? 3. A local citizen who volunteered his time to give tours at the Nazi concentration camp of Dachau began the tour by talking about Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, implying that Darwin's theory led to Dachau and the like. What's the obvious logic of that line of reasoning? In what ways might it be flawed? Inside Story The Two Paths Chief Asang was weeping, and no one could console him. I had no idea why he was upset, but I asked God to help me to comfort him. I am a student missionary teaching the children of the chief's people. As I approached the chief, he reached out and hugged me. Thank you for coming, he said when he saw me. Something is bothering me, and I know you can help. Confused by his greeting, I wondered what I could do to help him. I had a dream of two pathways, he said. One path was wide and brightly lit. The other was a narrow trail, rugged and dark. My people were working on the wide road, laughing and drinking as they travelled. On the narrow path I saw you and some children from the village, including my own grandchildren. Thistles on the narrow path tore your skin, but you didn't seem to mind. You were singing some of the songs you and the children sing at morning worship. Then suddenly... Everything changed. The wide road became steep and dark, while the narrow trail became bright. Suddenly the wide road ended, and my people fell into a ravine, screaming in terror. I looked toward the narrow path and saw you and the children entering a pearly gate. Then I saw the face of Jesus that you showed us in the picture roll. He was welcoming you and my children to the city you call heaven. Most of my people were lost, the chief mourned, and I was among them. Please tell me what this dream means. I prayed for God's help to answer the chief's tearful plea. Then I said, Your dream of the two pathways was written a long time ago in God's word. Opening my Bible, I showed him Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. How can my people and I get on this narrow trail? The chief asked with a pleading voice. You must decide to follow Jesus now, while there is still time, chief, I encouraged. Please tell me what we must do. I will tell my people to listen to you, he responded, hope filling his voice. I explained God's plan of salvation to the chief. I told him that his people are God's children, and he wants to welcome them all into his kingdom. Chief saying is receiving Bible studies and plans to be baptized soon. Your mission offerings help to support Seventh-day Adventist schools that send missionaries like me to people still living in darkness. Thank you for helping us to reach God's children everywhere with his love.
The author, Renaboy Atatiko, is a student missionary from Mountain View College in the Philippines. This podcast of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, the Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful.